You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. All right, well, we're in our text this morning, the Book of Acts, chapter 9, starting at verse 31. Um, Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the freedoms that you give us in this nation. We recognize, Lord, that it is not in every nation on this earth that people enjoy the kind of freedoms and the kind of blessings that we do here. And so we want to receive them gratefully, not take them for granted. And we want to pray for a blessing upon those who have won those freedoms for us and continue to hold them for us, God. And now, uh, with grateful remembrance and and uh, reception of those blessings, Lord, now, now we want to dig into your word and ask that you'd speak to us and guide us and uh, be with us now and speak to our open hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been making our way through the book of Acts. Now we come to verse 31 of chapter 9. We've been following the narrative all the way from the beginning where it started in Jerusalem and now the gospel is beginning to spread more and more outward from Jerusalem. It spread to Samaria. It spread to the areas of broader Judea. And we sort of had a summary statement of this in verse 31, describing as such. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. It's really something wonderful that we have throughout the book of Acts is occasionally uh, Luke, the author of the book, will give us sort of these summary statements telling us how the work of God continues and prospers and is blessed. And really, that's the idea that that, that God has something he wants to do in this world. and, And as he blesses from heaven, as Jesus directs his church, the ascended Lord there enthroned in heaven. He works through his people. He works through them as individuals and he works through them as a community. And when you see these communities of Christians, you you could call them the church. As you see those blessed, as you see those strengthened, as you see those growing, you see the work of God being furthered and extended in this world. So that's what we read there right there in verse 31. Then the churches, now notice the regions, throughout all Judea, Judea, of course, being that area, that, that, that district sort of surrounding uh, Jerusalem, that southern part of what we would call today the land of Israel. That then you have throughout Galilee, that's the area around the Sea of Galilee, northernmost of that, and Samaria. Samaria sort of being the area in between Judea and Galilee. They, they had peace and were edified. Now, again, Acts chapter 9 began with a very zealous man named Saul of Tarsus, who was breathing threats and murder against the church. He was a man filled of hate, filled with prejudice, filled with with murderous rage against the church. But God was more than able to turn his terrible threat into a great blessing. Luke wants to show us that, that not only did the work of God continue despite men like Saul of Tarsus, but actually it was strong even despite the great opposition that came against it. You see right there, it says that the church was expanding. I noticed with some interest right there in verse 31, where it says that the church was expanding in Galilee. Now now we're told something about the early Christian work in Judea and Jerusalem. We're told something about the work in Samaria. We just saw that a few weeks ago. But, But we're sort of interested to find that churches were also being planted and established in Christian communities were coming up in Galilee. 
the, the, the book of Acts doesn't describe anything specifically of that. It doesn't talk about one of the apostles going there or a man like Philip or Stephen or somebody else. This tells us that the record we have in the book of Acts is incomplete. There was a whole lot going on that isn't recorded for us. We're just given highlights at particular places and particular times. There was a lot going on in Galilee that we're really not told very much about. The book of Acts is only a partial history of what God was doing during this period. But notice what he says there in verse 31 about the churches. It says that the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. Notice that first. They had peace. They had peace even though persecution was continuing. They still had difficulties. They still had tremendous challenges. They still had people who were like Saul of Tarsus because even though he in the beginning of Acts chapter 9 was converted gloriously and made that transition from being a persecutor to, to being someone who was persecuted, even though they had that glorious transition, there were other people who sort of took his place as persecutors of the church of God. But despite that persecution, despite those threats, the churches had peace. It doesn't mean that all the persecution had stopped. It means that they had peace in the midst of that kind of opposition. Listen, that's really something notable. We have to understand that God wants us to have peace even in the midst of the storm. If you're waiting for all the conflicts in your life and all the difficulties to stop so that you can have peace, you're never going to have peace. But no, you can have it in the midst of things. So the churches had peace. The churches were edified. That means that they were built up. They were growing in numbers and strength. And then I love this phrase at the end of verse 31. Did you notice that? It says, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. I think the two things that are mentioned there at the end of verse 31 are very striking and very appropriate for some focus of our Christian lives. He mentions two things, right? Number one, the fear of the Lord. And number two, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Whenever God's people are walking in both of those things, they're both walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, you you can expect that their numbers are going to be multiplied and the blessing of God will be upon that work. Now, I think one thing that's needed more and more in our world today is a fear of the Lord. Do do you understand what I mean by that phrase? I'm not talking about some sort of, you know, abject terror of God, feeling like he's the great big bad guy in the sky who's ready to smash you down as soon as you start having some fun. I'm talking about a very appropriate reverencing of God. Now, I'm talking about what used to be spoken of in prior generations, right? In prior generations, I mean, I don't think I've seriously heard somebody use this phrase for 20, 25 years, but they used to talk about somebody being a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. And it was quite a compliment, wasn't it? It meant the kind of person, you know what, you can trust them because they're a God-fearing man. You can count on that woman because she's a God-fearing woman. She or he believes that there's a God in heaven who cares about how we live. And friends, wouldn't you think that, that this awareness, it's really escaped a lot of people today. And I don't mean to sound too harsh, but I'll sound it as harsh as it needs to be sounded here today. But there's many of you, you need a renewal of the fear of God in your life. You, you need to come to a greater respect of the Lord and, and have this idea that there is a God in heaven and he really cares about how you live. 
that, that you have to take it seriously that what you do and how you live or how you don't live, it can really displease God. And you need to live with a greater sense of the fear of the Lord in your life. And again, I'm not talking about some strange terror that you think that God is a bad guy. Know that there's a God in heaven and he cares about how we live. Do, do you feel that? Do you sense that? Now, maybe you do. But maybe you feel it in a small way and you need to feel it in a greater way in your life. Isn't this true? Isn't this something that we need to come to a new awareness? Isn't it a great characteristic of our culture in the last generation of two that people just don't fear God in the way that they used to? They don't respect God. We need to have so many more laws so that people will fear a lawsuit, right? Because they don't fear the Lord, but they may fear a lawsuit. They don't fear the Lord, but but they'll fear, uh, you know, some regulation from the government or some other law. How much better it would be if we feared the Lord? How many fewer laws we would need as a culture, right, if people feared the Lord? So that's a big one right there. Verse 31 again. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Well, find this is sort of the other end of the spectrum, right? The comfort of the Holy Spirit is that sweet assistance, that sweet help, that sweet grace of the Holy Spirit that comes to us at the necessary time. That, that sort, of, sort of loving hug and strengthening presence of God in our life. And we need that as well, don't we? I look at these two aspects of really the character of God that we both need in our lives. Some of us need, to a greater degree, the fear of the Lord. Some of us need to a greater degree the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But I'm telling you, God is here. God is present to bring those things into your life. And I don't know, I kind of be, wish I could, I wish I could interview each individual here and find out what is it in your life that you really need. No, you, you need more of a sense of the fear of God. No, you over there, you need a greater sense of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I may not know, but can I tell you the Holy Spirit knows exactly. He knows exactly what it is. And I think if you'll just ask Him, And if you'll be open to him working it deep in your life, he'll tell you this morning. And he'll bring you back to that place where you're seeking him for a greater sense of reverence and honor toward God or a greater reception of the comfort and strength that he brings. You put both of those things together, and man, that's a strong, dynamic Christian community. That's a strong, dynamic, individual Christian life, walking both in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, I titled this message, I'm terrible at titling messages, I could really use a lot of help with that, but I, I just, I title it Four Miracles because I see four miracles in the text that we're going to, at least four. You could probably count more. But I'll tell you one miracle I see. I think it's a miracle that despite the persecution, despite the difficulties, these churches were growing and prospering and being blessed as we see there in verse 31. But verse 32 leads us into a second miracle. Let's take a look. Second miracle here, verse 32. Now it came to pass that as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately, so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. There's actually some fascinating and interesting things in verse 32. First of all, notice that it says that Peter went throughout all parts of the country. This is a wonderful change from the pattern we've seen before. Do you know what the pattern we've seen the apostles before is? Pretty much, not absolutely, but pretty much, the apostles stay in Jerusalem and let ministry come to them. Right? We're going to stay in Jerusalem. Now, isn't this funny? 
The very men to whom God said, I want you to make disciples over all the earth. I want you to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. The very men who heard Jesus say that with their ears, they didn't do it. They stayed right there in Jerusalem. Now we see Peter interrupting that routine. And at least Peter, I wish it said all the apostles, but at least it says Peter. At least Peter got outside of Jerusalem and said, hey, let me see what God wants. He went on a missions trip. Can we say that? He said, I want to go out and see what God's going to do. And so he went through, verse 32 says, through all parts of the country to do ministry. And he traveled some 35 miles from Jerusalem over to this place called Lydda. You know, some of you have been to Lydda. Did you know that? If you've ever flown into Israel, you probably landed at Ben-Gurion Airport outside of Tel Aviv. That's near modern-day Lod in Israel. And that's near, that's the, pretty much built on the site of modern-day Lydda. You've been there, this very same area. Well, while he was there, while he was out serving God, while he got out of, you want to say, his comfort zone in Jerusalem, was out serving God, what happened? Verse 33, there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years. Peter found a needy man that God wanted to miraculously heal. And Peter found him as he was out ministering to others in the name of Jesus. Now, I find this, and I hope you don't take any offense or wrong impression from this this analogy, but I think you can say it. But Peter went out on a short-term mission trip, right? And God really used him in an unusual way. Now, there are many of you who've had the same experience. You've gone out, maybe with this congregation, you've gone to one of our short-term mission trips, you've gone to, uh, you know, Mexico, you've gone to Costa Rica, you've gone to Indonesia, you, you've gone to one of the other places, one of the wonderful short-term mission trips that this congregation has organized. You've gone... And man, you saw God do some amazing stuff. Just amazing. It's like, wow, I saw God do that. I never thought God could do that. But look at what God did. And I went out to this place and did it. And you thought the same thing when you came back. You thought, why don't I see God do more of that stuff here in Santa Barbara? Well, I'll tell you why. There's really a reason. I think it was true in Peter's dynamic and probably true in our own as well. Listen, when you went on that short-term mission trip, you took the time You took the resources, you took the focus of your mind and your heart, and you said, I'm going to set this apart to serve God in this special way, and I'm going to expect God to move a certain way. Now, can I just tell you plainly, if you took the same mind, the same heart, the same mentality, the same use of your resources, and doing all that, and and put it to work right here in Santa Barbara, you'd see God do similar things. Now, I don't say that for a moment to say, don't go on the short-term mission trips. No, do, and do more and more of them. But take that same mentality to your life right here now and you'll see God do similar things. I mean, any time we set ourselves to be used of God in a special way, you'll see God use you in a special way. And that's exactly what Peter experienced there in Lydda. And so what happened? Verse 34, Peter goes up to this guy who had been bedridden for eight years, paralyzed for eight years. And he goes up to him and he says, look at that, verse 34, Aeneas Jesus, the Christ, heals you. Notice he clearly identified who did the healing work. It was Jesus, the Christ. Peter didn't want to apply for a moment that it was Peter and him power doing it. By the way, this is a contrast to the way that Jesus did miracles, right? Jesus would heal people on his own authority. Peter was very careful to do only anything on the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus did miracles in the power of Jesus. 
Peter did miracles in the power of Jesus. Do you see the similarity there? But notice this as well. He says this in verse 34 to the man, arise and make your bed. Now, you know what I think is interesting about that? Is those are almost the exact words that Jesus spoke to a man when he healed him from paralysis. It's a great situation. It's in Mark chapter 2. It's one of the coolest miracles in all the Gospels. Preachers love this miracle. If you don't like this miracle and preaching on it, you just... There's something wrong with you in ministry. It's that one where uh, some friends of the paralyzed man lowered him down through an opening in the roof. Isn't that cool? You know, guys lowering a guy down on a stretcher and calling out to Jesus, man, heal this guy. Heal him. We don't have to pull him back up. You know, heal him so he can walk out of there. And Jesus looks at the man and what does he say? He says, son, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven you. Is that right? they, you could just imagine the guys who lowered him. No, he doesn't need forgiveness. He needs healing. But Jesus knew what that man's greater need was. And, and as much as he needed to be healed, and he did need to be healed, he had a greater need in his life for forgiveness. And, and Jesus said that because he knew that it would sort of get under the skin of the religious officials who would wonder, who does this man Jesus think he is, that he has the power to forgive sins? And Jesus said this to the religious people gathered there. He said, listen, you, you wonder whether or not I have the power to forgive sins. But I'm going to demonstrate to you that I do have the power to forgive sins because I'm going to show you that I have the power to heal this man right now. Of course, I'm paraphrasing, but that's a general idea of what Jesus said. And then Jesus healed the man, demonstrating that not only he had the power to heal, but he also had the power to grant forgiveness of sins. And the man was gloriously healed. But when he healed him, he said this to the man. He said, arise and take up your bed. Very similar to exactly what Peter said right here. I would suggest to you that Peter heard the echo of Jesus's words when he said this. He's thinking, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? I don't know. I remember seeing Jesus do this. So I'll do the same thing. And Jesus did a glorious work. He he did this work through Peter in this situation. And Jesus was still working. Now, friends, I, I think this is interesting. I think it's interesting because we see there that Peter was using Jesus and his work as an example. Now, I, I need to explain this very carefully. I do believe that Jesus is an example for us. I think we look at the way he lived. I think of what he taught. I think of what he did. I think of how he allowed the Holy Spirit to use him. I think we look at all those things and we understand Jesus is an example. But as soon as I say those words, I need to clarify something very important. Jesus is so much more than an example for us. And... Jesus being an example is not the most important thing he is. Friends, you could live your life dedicated to the proposition that Jesus will be your example. And you'll try to do exactly what he did. And you could still fall short of ever trusting in him to forgive your sins. So this greater work that Jesus did was not to live in a life that was an example for us, though he did that. The greater work that Jesus did was to die on the cross to stand in the place of guilty sinners. To live a life that would be credited to you and I as our righteousness. And there on the cross, as he was nailed to that horrible piece of wood, he bore within himself all the wrath, all the guilt, all the shame that your sin and my sin deserved. That was his greater work. Don't ever lose sight of that. Listen, I don't mind saying Jesus should be our example, but I mind it greatly if people act like that's the main thing he came to do. 
He came to do for me something I could never do for myself. Rescue me from my own sins. And he did that for you as well. Oh, look, I don't mind lifting up Jesus before you as a glorious example. And I think Peter right here in verse 32 was taking his cues from Jesus. But don't get lost in the idea here. Don't get lost in the idea that Jesus is primarily or most importantly your example. No, my friends, he needs to be your savior. He needs to be the one who rescues you from the punishment that you rightly deserve from God. That's who Jesus is. And that's what he came to do most pointedly. Now, this miracle that Jesus did right there in Lydda, it became very well known. Verse 35. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. The the miraculous healing of Aeneas made many people turn to the Lord, presumably with Peter preaching the gospel to them, right? I mean, it gave them the opportunity and Peter preached the gospel and they turned to the Lord. Now take a look now at verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. All right, let's just get this out of the way. It's a strange sounding name, right? Don't don't get into the whole Dorcas thing. I mean, look, it's a beautiful name. It is. Dorcas and Tabitha in Aramaic and in Greek, they mean different things. They mean they mean a gazelle or deer. Okay? So it's a beautiful name. Don't get hung up on the strangeness of the name. A certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. So this woman named Tabitha, or Dorcas in the other language, This woman was a beloved member of the Christian community of Joppa because she was full of good works and charitable deeds. She was a wonderful woman who did so many good things for the Christian community. But I love how Luke phrases it right there in verse 36. Did you notice this? He notes that Dorcas was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Why do I think that's remarkable? Well, because I've met some people, and sometimes I'm speaking about myself, but I've met some people who are full of good works and charitable deeds, which they think about, right? (laughs) Which they plan to do someday, which they think somebody else should do. Oh, but it's a fewer number of people, is it not, who are actually full of good works and charitable deeds, which they do, which they actually do before God. Friends, I guess I just want to drive that point home. Look, it's a wonderful thing that those charitable works and good deeds, if they're in your mind, if they're in your heart, great. But why don't you put them out on the street and actually do them? Do those things. You've been thinking about helping that person? Help them. You've been thinking about praying for that person? Pray for them. You've been thinking about meeting that need? Meet it. Do those actual things. And that's what Dorcas did. And that's what made her so wonderful among that early Christian community. Well, so anyway, these disciples, they're in Joppa, not in Lydda, where Peter is. But they hear that Peter is in Lydda. So they send out word, hey, Peter, come quickly. Hey, either she's died or she's going to die very soon. We don't know exactly where it was in the chronology. But come quickly. Don't delay. Come to us in a hurry. Begging Peter to come. And that's exactly what he does, starting at verse 39, where it says, Then Peter rose and went with them. 
And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing his tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. Isn't that a great narrative. What happens there starting at verse 39? Well, Peter gets the word. Hey, this woman has just died, or maybe she was very near death, but the, the, the need was urgent. Come quickly, Peter. And so Peter comes, and he travels a distance from uh, Lydda to Joppa, which wasn't a terribly great distance, but he came. And, and, and listen, uh, they came, and they, they, they were hoping that Peter would do something special with this woman who had just died. My friends, I, I need to point this out. There is no indication in the book of Acts that it was common or that it was popularly expected that dead Christians would be resuscitated to life again. It's not like it happened all the time. This miracle and a few similar to them in the book of Acts is listed here exactly because it was an unusual and remarkable occurrence. This was very unusual. It's not like every time a Christian died in the early church, they said, oh, have Peter pray for him and they'll raise from the dead. No, that wasn't the situation at all. This was remarkable. And many of you might be asking the same question today. Would God do such a thing today? Well, listen, I think it's entirely possible that God could. I've heard reports that I believe are reliable, even though I must say that I have heard many reports that I think are fanciful. I think they're meant for the gullible to take on. That, that, that people are raised from the dead, but there's no sort of good evidence. There's no sort of good good documentation of it. It, it just seems to have an air of hype or, or over-enthusiasm about it. But I would say this. I do believe that it's something that God actually does in the world today. I heard a remarkable story from somebody that I trust very much. Again, it wasn't my experience, but it was something, somebody, I, I trust this person very much. They told me about one time this guy was a pastor at a church, and they're at their church. Uh, they, they, they had the service, or they showed up. It, it wasn't a normal service day. I take that back. It was just a normal office day. And they go out to the parking lot of the church, and they find there in the parking lot a man slumped over the wheel of his car, dead because of an apparent drug overdose. Very sad. And so what they do immediately, they called for the ambulance. The ambulance came. They took him out of the car. They tried to resuscitate the man or getting some life in him. Absolutely unable to do it. The man was stretched out on the gurney. The, the, the paramedics, who you would assume to be men who are skilled in this kind of thing, the paramedics laid the man out on the gurney and covered him with the blanket in that terrible sort of customary way that you, that man's dead, right? I mean, when they cover your face with the blanket, they think you're dead. So what they do, they... These Christians, this man, they, they prayed for the man. They went over and they prayed. And nothing immediately happened, but, but not a short time later. That man sat up with a start. And the paramedic screamed. You can just imagine how startling that would be for a paramedic. And that man was alive. Now, look, you could say, well, the medical history wasn't done fully enough. You really didn't. Well, I, I don't know. Look, you can make those arguments all day long. But look, a man who was apparently dead and judged to be dead by some people who know what they were, that man, after prayer, came back alive and lived. So that's remarkable, isn't it? Wouldn't you take this? Well, God does such things today, although I will take pains to emphasize you should not believe every report of people raising from the dead. 
did you know that there was a story that went about that I raised people from the dead? I'm serious. This, this really went about. Now, not popularly, but I should tell you the story because it's a good story. <laughs> Many years ago, when I was a younger pastor and when I was doing some of my first missionary trips to, to Europe, one of the early ones I went on was I went to a missionary trip to Bulgaria. It wasn't long after the wall came down, and it was just sort of an exciting, sort of crazy time to do ministry in, in Eastern Europe. So I flew into Sofia, Bulgaria, and, uh, you know, without any rest, without anything, I got right on a train because a couple hours after landing at the airport, I was supposed to preach at a gypsy church. Now, I was preaching at the gypsy church, which was sort of a surreal kind of thing. You know, you're sort of foggy from jet lag and all the rest. And there you are in a, a gypsy church service in Bulgaria. Man, that's, that's sort of a special experience. I'm preaching at the church service, and I decide to tell a story towards the end of the message. And the story goes something like this, how Inga Lil and I were driving home. This is when we lived in Simi Valley. And we're driving on one of the major roads there, Tierra Hada, and we see an automobile accident. And it looked like a severe accident. And we saw the ambulance there and they were, you know, it just looked to be a serious thing. And we did what you probably would have done. You just pray for that person, don't you? You try, Brian, you pray for the person in that accident, the person that was afflicted. And we pray, and, you know, you, you don't think a whole lot about it afterwards, but you pray for that person at the moment. Well, we came to find out later that the person in that accident was actually a member of our church there at Calvary Chapel, Simi Valley. And this poor woman was in intensive care. And, of course, when we found that out, we went to the hospital. And our heart was, listen, we got to encourage this poor woman. She must be so discouraged. She must be so... we got to go there and just help her and strengthen her in her faith in the midst of this very difficult situation. Well, here was sort of the whole point of the story. When we got in there at the... At the um, intensive care unit and she was conscious and she was able to talk and all this we thought they're thinking we went there thinking that we would be the ones really to encourage her but it was just one of those amazing situations where she encouraged us i mean just where she was at with god and her trust in the lord and her steadfastness through such an obviously difficult thing we were really blessed by this woman's faith and and it was one of those things you go into the hospital thinking you go there to encourage somebody you walk out of the hospital more encouraged than ever it was just great. That was the story I told. That was the story I told. It's not the story that the translator told. <laughs> because after the service, the translator's talking to me and says, well, I think I should let you know that I kind of changed, you know, I kind of got ahead of you in the story. I said, what? What? And she said, well, yeah, I, you know, I got ahead of you in the story. And I, well, I told everybody that the person died. And so when you talked about her being alive, they all figured that, that you raised her from the dead. And, well, and I, you know, man, what do you do with that? I wondered why they seemed so excited during that part of the message. Well, so anyway, when they, when they, when she said that, I was horrified. Oh my gosh, this is horrible. We had just dismissed the meeting. I thought, where's the pastor? We got to call this meeting back together. I got to tell her, no, I didn't raise her from the dead. You know, it's a different story altogether. So with great alarm, I located the pastor and said, please, you know, we got to call that. I got to tell them that I didn't really do this. You know what the pastor said? Don't worry about it at all. He said, in our gypsy services, every week, somebody in the service faints. And when that person comes back too, we all say that they were raised from the dead. So I said, no, they don't think you're anything special for raising the dead. It happens every week here. Well, look, all that to say this. First of all, if you ever hear a rumor that I'm a raiser of the dead, well, it hasn't happened yet. I'll say that. 
despite whatever story may go out among the gypsies of Bulgaria. <laughs> but I will say this. Look, I do believe, and I, I sense that you do as well, you believe that God can and does do such things today. But we should not have uh, a gullibility about such things. We should not automatically or just quickly take every reported case of this as being true. But yet, nevertheless, it, it is true that God can and God would do such things today. Well, it certainly happened here. Look at it, verse 39. It says that all the widows stood by him weeping. And, and I don't know, maybe Peter thought, God, why do you have me? Am I here to comfort these grieving widows? Am I here just to bring some comfort? But very quickly, somewhere along, Peter sensed God wanted him to do something really unusual, remarkable, that God wanted to raise this woman up from the dead. So what did he do? Verse 40, he put them all out. Now, again, that's very fascinating because it's very much like what Jesus did in another circumstance, right? In Mark chapter 5, it's also recorded in Luke chapter 8, Jesus went to go heal the, the, the daughter of a man who was the ruler of a synagogue. And when he did that, he put all the mourners out of the room. It's almost as if Peter's saying, I, I want to do just what Jesus did. I want to follow his example here. So he put them all out of the room. And what does he say? Verse 40, he says, Tabitha, arise. Now, again, this is very much exactly what Jesus did in Mark chapter 5, or also it's recorded in Luke chapter 8. Because in that story, Jesus says to, to this little girl in the original language, Jesus says to the girl, Talitha Kumai. And, and you know what Peter would have said in the original language? He would have said, Tabitha Kumai. I mean, it almost sounds the same. Little girl, arise, is what Jesus said. Tabitha, arise, is what Peter said. And so Peter was simply trying to do what Jesus did. He was letting Jesus be his leader. And you know what's especially meaningful about that in the life of Peter? Because previously in the life of Peter, you see instances where Peter was trying to lead Jesus, right? Jesus, don't go to the cross. Jesus, um, don't wash my feet. Jesus, do this. Jesus, don't do that. Peter was trying to lead Jesus. Now, in the book of Acts, Peter is letting Jesus be his leader. I don't know. It's just a side point. I don't mean to camp out on this, but maybe that's some of you this morning. That's the most important thing you need to hear this morning. Honestly, you've been trying to lead Jesus. You're trying to get Jesus to sign on to your program, to your agenda. And you know what? He wants you to sign on to his program, his agenda. It's just a very basic point, but, but that's exactly what Peter's doing here. In verse 40, and she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, by all appearances, Tabitha was raised from the dead. She was dead and came back to life. And these are remarkable, unusual miracles, yet things that have happened and still do happen. But friends, we got to admit, we don't know why God would do it in one instance and not do it in another instance. Just a few chapters before, the first martyr of the Christian church, a man named Stephen, gave his life down for the Lord. And in just a few chapters to come, James, the first apostle who will be a martyr, he's going to lay his down life for the Lord. Now, I just simply ask you a question. Why would God raise Dorcas up and bring her back from the dead, but not raise up Stephen or not raise up James? If you think you have a categorical answer for that, I would question that. I would say we just don't know, do we? We don't know. God has his ways. 
we, we don't know in every instance why God would choose to heal one person and not choose to heal another. We don't know in every instance why it would seem the blessing of God would be so evident in one place and not so evident in another place. We just don't know some of these things. But nevertheless, God is working out his plan. Friends, that's a third miracle, isn't it? A glorious raising of somebody from the dead. God has a greater wisdom. God has a greater plan. The the first miracle was the blessing upon the churches. The second miracle was the the healing of Aeneas from his paralysis. This third miracle is the raising of Dorcas or Tabitha from the dead. And so he called together the saints, the widows. Many believed on the Lord. Verse 42. Oh, I shouldn't pass this up. Verse 41. Verse 41 of Acts chapter 9 as well as verse 32, which I skipped over before this particular point, those two verses, verse 32 and verse 41, those are the first places in the book of Acts where the followers of Jesus are called saints. Did you know that the followers of Jesus are called saints? That means that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've put your trust in him and you have been, to use some biblical terminology, you've been born again. Jesus Christ has given you a new life and you've received it. If that's you, you're a saint. Now, maybe nobody's ever called you a saint before in your life. But you are. Because in the biblical conception, a saint isn't somebody who has achieved some super perfected godliness. It's someone who is set apart for the purpose of God. And God has set you apart for his pleasure, for his love, for his purpose, for his plan. That's what a saint is. It's mentioned in verse 32, now in verse 41, when he had called the saints and widows, and then verse 42, many believed on the Lord. That's the third miracle. Now, the fourth miracle, because in my weak efforts to name this message, I mentioned four miracles. Fourth miracle is contained in verse 43. So you ready for this? It says, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. You might say, well, first, I don't see the miracle. Secondly, if there is, what's the miracle about Peter being a guest in somebody's home, right? I don't get it. Where's the miracle there? Well, that's exactly what happened. See, Peter was in Lydda, right? He went to Joppa because of this whole thing with Dorcas. But while he was in Joppa, he decided to stay there a few days or many days. And when he stayed there, where did he stay? He stayed at the home of Simon and Tanner. You and I read that and we go, who cares? Somebody from that culture, a a, a Jewish person of the first century, would read that line, verse 43, and they would be shocked. At the home of Simon the Tanner, I thought that Peter was a good Jewish boy. I thought that Peter was a man who still kept kosher. I thought that Peter was a man that, yes, he trusts in Jesus as a Messiah, but but he still keeps the institutions of Judaism. What business does he have staying at the home of a tanner? You might say, what does God have against tanners? Now, this isn't speaking about people sunbathing at the beach, people getting (laughs) tans at the beach. You know what a tanner is, right? A tanner is somebody who works with the hides of animals, right? And so they make leather, whatever, sheepskin seat covers, whatever it would be. You make out a a tan or it works with the hides of animals, right? Well, if you're going to work with the hides of animals, you're going to deal with a lot of dead animals, right? 
And people who dealt with dead carcasses, whether they be human or whether they be animal, they were considered to be, for the most part, under Jewish law, ritually unclean. And so any pious Jew, any person who had a concern for ritual cleanliness, according to the customs of Judaism, they would stay away from a tanner. Matter of fact, it was a Jewish law that a tanner had to live at least 75 feet outside of a village because of his constant ritual uncleanliness. Mr. Tanner, you're not welcome in the community of Judaism. You do not get a seat at the synagogue, Mr. Tanner, because your job makes you forever unclean. You're just not really one of us. Matter of fact, it is said that the business of being a tanner was held in such disrepute among those ancient Jewish people that if a girl was engaged to a man who was a tanner without knowing that that was his profession, when she found out she was under every right to break the engagement. Just no, who would marry a tanner? Yet nevertheless, look at what Peter's doing. Peter is staying at the home of a tanner. You know what this means? That his understanding of what pleases God is changing. It's becoming more biblical. You will not find a commandment in the Bible that says thou shalt, uh, thou shalt not stay at the home of a tanner. It doesn't say that. That was a custom that was built upon rituals that somewhere back along the line was based upon God's word. But those things can get pretty twisted over the years, can they not? There was no command, but there were customs again. And Peter felt free to break the customs of that day because they didn't line up with the word of God. And this is absolutely critical for what God is going to do in the next chapter. The next chapter, wow. Acts chapter 10, you've you got to be here for that. that. That is one of the most thrilling chapters in the entire book of Acts. Because Acts chapter 10 tells us about something that may be more groundbreaking than the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 10, you have the conversion of Peter. You see, in Acts chapter 9, you have the conversion of a man who's hostile from God and rejecting him. In Acts chapter 10, you have the conversion of a religious man from his religious traditions. That's huge. In any regard, look, he stayed many days with Joppa, in Joppa, with Simon the Tanner. Now, I want you to notice this. I'm going to come back to something I I'd said earlier. Peter was walking in the fear of the Lord because he was not disobeying a commandment. And that's very important, right? He was a God-fearing man. God made no command against staying with the tanner. He was walking in the fear of the Lord, not disobeying a commandment. Nevertheless, he was also walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, receiving his help and his guidance and his assistance. You see those two things working in the life of Peter. And it's going to shake the world, as you'll see in Acts chapter 10. Friends, I guess I just want to conclude on that very point. Are you? Are you walking in the fear of the Lord? Are you receiving the comfort of the Holy Spirit? I could say with some confidence that one of those two points, and maybe both of them, touches every life that's here this morning. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Which is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about right now that you need more of in your life? Whatever it is, 
Let's ask God for it now as we turn our hearts to him to, to take communion together and to worship him more.